You're listening to the best of Massacre Radio, featuring John Rhodes from July 10th, 2023. We go to the hotline and introduce John Rhodes. He's the guy that introduced reptilians to society, a coast-to-coast AM legend and owner of Reptoids.com, the Reptoid Research Center. John, thank you so much for your time today. How's things in your neck of the woods? Uh, Really great. Uh, No problems on my end. Let's start with this, John. What's your read on the current climate of current UFO disclosure and secret crash recovery programs that have been dominating the headlines as of late? I believe that we're coming towards some sort of a transformative age that we've all waited for. It's a matter of when is the announcement of something other than human having contact with planet Earth, our human beings, when is that going to be convenient and useful for the authorities to make an announcement? I just have to point back to the early 1990s when this started, when they started producing a lot more films with characters with reptilian features to their physical likeness. And there's a lot of science behind that idea. You've got evidence from scientists saying that the true possibility is that we might be having contact with a species that is not from necessarily off-planet, but one that actually shares our planet with us in remote geological regions. Now, reported this week, Senator Marco Rubio says officials report possession of non-human UFOs with dead pilots. I guess my question, I mean this coupled with the David Gresh report from a few weeks ago, what incentive do these high-ranking officials have to come forward with this sensitive information? Well, it's coming to a point in which it's hard to dismiss anymore. We've got too many whistleblowers coming forward, and we're seeing technologies being employed and evidence of these technologies that's hard to dismiss. We're talking about craft that can fly from 80,000 feet to sea level in less than a second, which is approximately 50,000 miles an hour. Anything inside a craft like that, a human at least, would not be able to withstand the G-force of such acceleration or deceleration. And as far as the crash retrieval evidence, um, it's been my philosophy from a long time. Unless they're coming on day trips from far outside our galaxy, they may have set up shop here a long time ago and are using resources and uh, minerals and uh, making their craft and parts from products that produce here on Earth. So for the scientists, it's easy for them to dismiss that it's anything but nonsense because they say, look, there's no extraterrestrial material here. What exactly is the connection, if any, between reptilian humanoids and the extraterrestrial? Well, we have a a man by the name of Dale Russell, who is a paleontologist. He's now deceased. But uh, a number of years ago, in the early 1980s, he actually produced a report for NASA to document what his thoughts were, what extraterrestrial life would look like. What he did is he took a dinosaur named Truodon and that died about 65 million years ago. And he says, look, most of the dinosaurs were walking upright on two legs. They were getting arms and hands that had opposable thumbs. Their eyes started coming from the side of their heads to forward point, which means they had stereoscopic vision, which made them better hunters. Their brain case was larger. And he said, given the possibility that some of these could have survived, he says they could have actually evolved into something that was like upright humanoid in appearance, but still remained reptilian with its physiology. So is there a possibility that some breakaway group of creatures, beings, could have have evolved also separate and parallel to mankind and have just been smart enough to stay away from us for the most part because we're pretty dangerous. 
John Rhodes is my guest. John, you touched on a key word there, archaeology. And when I was doing research for this interview, I came across an article on these figures, these artifacts that were found in southern Iraq back in 1923 that some experts believe depict a reptilian humanoid. Talk a little about these and their significance. Talk a little bit about these artifacts and their significance. These were the, the green ter- uh, terracotta statues from the Ubaid culture of ba- Babylon. So these were found by a gentleman named Woolley, and he brought those forward, and they were, of course, stuck in the drawers of the museums. But when you're looking at them, they clearly show that they are upright humanoid-type beings that had re- reptilian slit eyes, a slit for a mouth, and a large kind of a conical head. And one of them was actually clutching and carrying a child to the chest as if they could breastfeed. These were fired in a green color. Some of these were actually stolen out of the museums when we had the Iraq One War. The museums were ransacked and some of these statues, particularly these, were ended up missing. So there seems to be an ancient connection with potentially something that made contact with us that was intelligent. We still have about 80% of all expected life forms on this earth that we have not even had contact with or seen. The majority of it lives underground. The majority of Earth's biomass is not on the surface that actually lives underground. And keep in mind, even if you're from off planet, you're certainly going to set up shop and not maybe go home every day. So alien cultures, whether it naturally evolved here on Earth or off Earth, are most likely living in remote geological areas and using Earth as a base of operations or this is where they live now. You know, there have been depictions of serpent-like beings throughout recorded history and even in the Bible being referred to as seraphims in the book of Isaiah. These beings have been seen in places like South Carolina, Tennessee, and Austria. What do you think they want with us? Why are they here? I mean, if they are trying to take over the world, they're doing an awfully bad job at it, don't you think? What makes us think they're trying to take over the world? You're talking about humans reacting to something fairly scary. And, you know, when I first came out with this information, there were a lot of people that wanted to attach fantasy type of material to it. And it was real easy to try and scare everybody because they were preconditioned through uh, biblical teachings that anything that looks humanoid and has a reptilian form to it and is talking to you has to be the devil. We are already preconditioned to be fearful of it. So for a lot of authors, it was an easy sell. They just said, hey, let's blame the world's uh, problems on these beings. And that's what happened. And it took off. You mentioned underground bunkers. There have been some reported in New Mexico, among other places. But I wanted to ask you about the Denver airport and its ties to secret underground bunkers that possibly harbor reptilian humanoids. Have you heard about this phenomena? And do you have any insight on it? Well, whether it's the airport or not, Denver in itself is a very, very important location. I believe personally that we are going to abandon Washington, D.C. as a national capital and relocate it to Denver, Colorado. And this has been in the planning stage for a long, long time. And now that we have troops in Washington because of civil unrest, supposedly, that they have not left Washington, they're setting the stages to say Washington became so dangerous for our leadership that they were required to relocate further inland where it's safer. And that location is going to be Denver. The Denver International Airport, which was built as a um, larger facility to replace Stapleton Airport, there's a great possibility that the airport itself has large underground tunnels and tube shuttle systems that maybe take uh, leadership just as they would in, in our nation's capital through tunnels and such to other locations. They would have done the same thing underneath Denver International Airport servicing the area immediately around there. 
This is where we're going to be looking for in the future as far as the central place from which our country is operated. John Rhodes is my guest. John, what do you think is holding back these reptilian humanoids from announcing themselves to the rest of the world, or has that already happened? Well, what's holding any alien creatures back from making their own announcement? I think we're given a certain amount of uh, self-governance on our planet, and there may be an issue of other alien cultures can't just suddenly land in a football field. So there are a certain matter of rules and governance on the planet, and that's where the men in black come in, because they're the enforcers to make sure that secret is actually a secret until it's time for it to come out. And given what we see going on around us in society today globally, I would suggest that kind of time is rapidly approaching. John, have you yourself ever encountered the so-called men in black that you speak of? Uh, yes, yes, I have. What can you tell us about your encounters with them, and when did it happen? Um, well, I encountered them one particular time with another person with me out at the Grand Canyon Cavern, south of the Grand Canyon, off uh, Highway 66. I was out there looking for a potential entrance to some sort of an underground facility there because it's one of the very few regions in the nation where they have dry caves and water sources. I was going out there two or three times and a friend of mine said, hey, I got a phone call. And these guys told me that if you and Tony go back out there again, you're going to end up dead. And I thought that my friend was pulling my leg and just trying to energize my explorations with some sort of sense of excitement. And I didn't pay any attention. But when I got out there to a dark, um, I mean, to a pullout, it was literally in the middle of nowhere. Here's two guys in the black car. One remained by the vehicle. The other one came over to my vehicle. My friend refused to get out and blamed me for the encounter. He didn't want to deal with it. He was very nervous. I stepped out. They introduced themselves to me where the one did. The other one never said anything. And he said some things about my private life and about private phone conversations I had earlier that day to kind of let me know that they're the ones listening without any mistake about it. And he told me that if I keep going out there, I'm going to end up lost or hurt and make Maybe nobody would find me again. And I was very respectful. I appreciated them for being concerned, but I told them they had nothing to be concerned about. And I actually had the gonads to turn around on the balls of my feet and walk away and turn my back on them. Wow. And then my friend Tony and I just kept walking and I said, don't, don't look around. Don't look back. We continued walking for about 15 minutes because it just didn't quite sink into us that we had actually met the men in black. I mean, the real ones. It, we, it's funny. It's like a post-contact encounter where people are dazed. We're walking out there and I just finally said to him, did we actually meet two men in black? And my friend was like, I think so. At the top of the interview, I mentioned Coast to Coast AM, and you said you've been on other shows like Ancient Aliens and Unsolved Mysteries, but I also know you were on Jesse Ventura's show, Once Upon a Time. What can you tell us about Jesse Ventura and that whole experience being on his show? What was he like? Uh, well, Jesse's an authentic being. He speaks out, and he doesn't care about what people think about what he says, and he's trying to get to the bottom of things. I didn't care about the Jesse Venture episode because it turns out that the entire production team was nothing more than trying to attack David Icke, the English author who proposes, oh, the king's a shapeshifter and all this other stuff going on, and he's very anti-Semitic and such like this. They were specifically going out to try and attack him and his credibility trying to use me as a V 
vehicle to do it, saying he's taken my work, basically, and he's produced all this fear and all this hatred amongst people. They weren't looking for the science of it. None of the scientific stuff I brought to the interview table was ever broadcast. And they ended up calling me an alien hunter, which I persistently said, I'm not that, you know, I'm not out to hunt aliens. That sounds very aggressive. But Hollywood's that way. Most of these television shows out there, some of the most popular ones have no ethics. They are willing to do pre-interviews with experts, get their information, and they feed them back through teleprompters to their main five characters or whatever. So information you bring out, even though you're not featured as an interviewee, are brought into the shows and basically taken from you because the producers have no concept of the research, but they present it according to their world point of view, not according to the expert's point of view. So it leaves me very sour. Interesting. Well, I guess I didn't know that there, John. What have you been working on recently, and what can you tell the folks about what you're currently working on, and where can they find you online? I know you have the website reptoids.com, but where else can they find you? They can find me on Facebook, John Rhodes, Crypto Hunter, C-R-Y-P-T-O-H-U-N-T-E-R. They can find me out there. The research I'm doing now, if you think that the subject of reptilian humanoids was exciting, I can't tell you exactly what I'm working on now, but I'm working on something now that is going to be a real game changer. I have made some discoveries that can be verified by anybody sitting at home. It has to do with even why Denver is going to be our next national capital. And there are people who are working globally. And ever since 2020, this is the big move. This is the big move to solidify everybody through fear. And I expect them to introduce some sort of potentially an extraterrestrial threat in order to draw us all together so we think of ourselves as humans instead of individual nations. I think now they're desperately trying to give this one world order a big push so they can say we're ready for contact. John, it was a pleasure. We will have to do this again sometime once you come forward with those details. John Rhodes has been my guest. John, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everybody else out there, for looking into anything I made have mentioned. Please contact me, visit at the website or on Facebook. Know your destination. AOL keyword fart, then show yourself around by clicking one of our many Masquerade Radio links. It's the only place to find exclusive Masquerade Radio web content. Download something new every week, only on AOL. Log on. You're listening to the best of Massacre Radio, featuring Eric Hecker from November 14th, 2023 back here on Massacre Radio, and as promised, I'm joined today by my guest, whistleblower Eric Hecker. He's here to bring the people up to speed on the reality of the problem. The problem, you ask? Well, Eric has the scoop on some government secrets, and it's no surprise that the government only tells us, we the people, so much. And to fill in these gaps, we welcome in our guest today, Eric Hecker. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. How are we doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Eric, like I mentioned in the intro there, you seem to have the inside scoop on some government secrets. But to set this up, I wanted to start with your childhood because I know you're from Long Island, which is known for the Montauk Project, which, real quickly here, is an alleged series of secret U.S. government projects conducted for the purpose of developing psychological warfare and techniques. Now, in what ways do you think this setting of your childhood and upbringing influenced your later experiences and personal beliefs? I think it was just conditioning for you know, what they do to many children for what they're looking as an end result product in adulthood. It's just a, a process that many children go through, my, myself, of course. And um, a lot of what I'm doing is to, you know, negate 
that aspect of our society and free the children. You also had involvement with the Stargate Project, which, again, just real quick for some listeners here, Stargate was a code name for a secret U.S. Army unit established to investigate the potential for psychic phenomena in military applications. So, Eric, based on your experiences within Stargate, what are your thoughts on psychic espionage and in what ways or how is it being applied in today's world? Oh, well, that's kind of an easy, it's it's complex, but easy, so to say. It's very referenceable in so far as that anybody can look up uh, Joe McGonagall and the remote viewers from way back when that were uh, highly effective and still have, you know, complete access to the U.S. government today in so far sharing the information that they ascertained through their skill set. There's uh, a lot more going on than the five senses that we are educated in possessing. And this withholding of information is unfortunate but uh, a lot of people would consider this woo-woo kooky stuff, but it's all very referenceable as legitimate. And as far as psychic espionage goes, I mean, there's there's decades and decades worth of research to support that this activity was not only not rare, but extremely common. So why is it, do you think, that information is being withheld? What's so dangerous about people knowing these types of things as it pertains to the Stargate Project? The danger would be um, allowing everybody to know that they have the capacity to function this technique and that this would negate the monopoly of those that are currently using it for their own nefarious purposes. Eric, do you believe you were picked for Stargate or was it a random collection of students? I imagine that there was some sort of a filtering process to find out who had higher propensities for greater skill sets and then the application thereof. Just like if the powers that be were looking to form a band, they would test each of the children and find out who was, you know, good at playing guitar, who's good at playing trumpet. And then, you know, there'd be a, a lead for each position. And then they would move on to, you know, other things. Not everybody is made to be a guitarist. Certainly you can train folks and, and everybody has the ability to learn more. But there are prodigies with every skill set on this planet that exists. Unfortunately for me in this equation, I was very good at remote viewing when I was younger. What's your opinion on the ability of the ordinary human to learn remote viewing skills? There's nothing stopping anybody from learning how to play the guitar. Certainly some people can be better at it than others, but everybody has the potential. So this is what they're withholding from us is that, you know, just like everybody has a voice. Everybody can use their voice. Some people are, you know, better for radio. Some people are better for singing. But every single person could apply practices to improve their vocal abilities. So what they want everybody to do is be unaware of their sixth sense, so to say, and or more. Because, again, it's about a monopoly. It's about control. It's about power. It's about profiteering. And it's just, you know, it's been going on for many decades. My guest today is whistleblower Eric Hecker. He's been around, been involved in some pretty interesting things, including, Eric, it says here, you were a career plumber on Long Island for some of the world's most wealthiest elites. What are some of the strange things you've seen while working for and or mingling with the elites of Long Island? Uh, many times in the master bathrooms of these uh, mansions that I was working in, it was, you know, before the digital realm. And it was common practice to come across magazine racks in in people's master bathrooms and some of the more peculiar literature that i came across in the magazine racks of the bathrooms of the wealthy elite were things like council on foreign relations quarterly trilateral commission monthly 
you know, these these are some of the big dogs in the problems of what we have going on in the in the machinations of manipulation of society on a whole on this planet. These are the folks that I work with around in proximity to. It's just this is the nature of the beast for the path that I walked and and why I, you know, refer to myself as, you know, deciphering my experience and also trying to figure out what is the value of these things? What's what was the purpose of all of these folks that I had to be involved with. So in talking with these people, these wealthy elites, did you ever mention the whole Stargate thing? And did anything they say to you corroborate your beliefs as it pertains to your experiences with it? More so in hindsight. So uh, a lot of the stuff that happened to me in in real time, first person perspective, from my point of view, uh, seemed very benign at the time that it was occurring. But it's in retrospect, that I have to consider that there was a lot more going on. Not every single person gets to spend a year at the South Pole Station. And it wasn't really until after that when people started saying to me, you know, what made you so special? How did you get to do this thing that apparently tens of thousands of people every year apply for these positions, but only a select few get chosen for these things? In retrospect, I had to start considering, well, that is a great question. How did I get involved in this program? What is the path that allowed me in? And it's through these connections, through these people that I, I have to, I guess, just gather that these connections made more sense to me post-situation than during. Eric, now, this is the biggest thing I wanted to ask you about while you're joining us. You know, you worked under Raytheon Polar Services for the National Science Foundation, both as a firefighter and a tradesman. And during your time there, you discovered controversial information about the Ice Cube Neutrino Detector and its capabilities and other undisclosed technologies that could have military and communication implications. So it's my understanding, Eric, that the Neutrino Detector is capable of triggering an earthquake. Is this correct? That's my understanding, sir, yes. What sort of advantage is there to having this type of technology anyway? I, 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 to me, it's um, very obvious. If you can start knocking down um, infrastructure, facilities, and threatening the civilian population, and there's, and there's no method to negate this type of attack, it's, it's one of the most powerful weapon systems on the planet. Now, when you discovered this information about the Ice Cube Neutrino Detector and you mentioned it to others who were there with you or you asked them about it, did they act like it was top secret or were they very nonchalant about the whole thing? Oh, no, they were not nonchalant. And this was very hush-hush. Um, it took many years of research and conversations for me to get to that understanding, to being read into the reality of the program, so to say. It was extremely shocking. This is part of the problem with compartmentalization of information is that I learned firsthand how easy it is to have good intentioned folks involved in very nefarious projects unbeknownst to them. So I was kind of flabbergasted to find out my role in this after the fact, and that very much motivated me to get involved with making sure that the people of the world are abreast of the situation, because I am certainly not happy with my involvement in the program. I was very much used. I was very much lied to. There were certain people that were completely in the know throughout everything in real time, but the vast majority of the people at the facility had no idea what was really going on. Many years afterwards, 
I came across this information by, you know, discussing with coworkers from the program, from the facility about what was really going on. And those conversations were initiated because of the, let's just say the negative medical impact on the crew. So we were concerned about the health of each other and just trying to get together to find out what, what do we do about the exposure that we had that we were, you know, more or less guinea pigs for the military industrial complex as they, you know, did their usual routine of manipulating the world, having weapons systems, profiteering thereof. And this this is where I'm at in the conversation is just trying to let the world know that things are a lot more complex than they can even begin to consider. You know, way back when Ben Rich of the Lockheed uh, Skunk Works had said to Jim Goodall, a man who I met, that the technology that is available to the, let's just say, the the upper class of the controlling mechanism of this planet is just decades and decades and decades beyond what he could imagine. And let's just say that Jim Goodall at the time could imagine a lot because he was very much read into a lot of the programs. So for somebody like Ben Rich to say to Jim Goodall, the level of our technology is beyond what you can consider. These are huge statements. And things have only gotten worse since then. So I appreciate that what I'm bringing to society seems far-fetched, seems off the wall, seems beyond comprehension. But that's kind of the whole point of this conversation is to bring people up to speed to the reality of the problem. At any point, were you in denial maybe about the discovery of this ice cube neutrino device and the vastness of it all, perhaps? I have no denial whatsoever um, from what I saw and what I have gathered. Um, everything makes perfect sense from my perspective. I'm somebody who's actually walked the walk, now I'm talking the talk. As far as being upset by it, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm infuriated to have been involved in such horrible activity. This is why I, I do what I do is to try to make amends. Talk about the reception you've received so far as it pertains to the interviews you've done and the people you've talked to about the Ice Cube Neutrino Detector. I'd say it's bittersweet. I'd say there's there's a, a good portion of folks out there that uh, appreciate and support what I do, but it's also obvious there's uh, way more effort being applied to try to paint me out as some lunatic to you know make it out like I, i'm some crazy person to discount what i'm saying um to try to paint me as an agent or a profiteer i mean i'm making no money off of this whatsoever actually it costs me money every month to maintain a website to have the documentation that i've provided which is you know verifiable so if people don't want to appreciate the information being presented to them by people with firsthand experience, I mean, that's to their own demise. If everybody out there is saying, you know, if that was true, if somebody knew that was going on, they would say something. Well, guess what, folks? I'm that guy. I, I have been there. I do know what's going on. I have crossed paths with all of the important people in these projects, and I am bringing the information public. I am fulfilling my responsibility as a human being. I'm doing the right thing. Any of the naysayers can speculate all they want and pretend like they know what's going on down there. And they can say that, you know, people need to support things with facts. And I would just say, do it. If you're gonna if you're gonna say I'm an agent, prove it. If you're gonna say what I'm saying is crazy, prove it. Because I've I've already proven my side six ways from Sunday. There's nobody that can actually take any factual information and negate one iota of anything I've presented. 
So with your understanding of the neutrino detector, I mean, if this is something that does exist, what's the next step or the next evolution of this neutrino detector? Uh, they just came out with information recently that they're looking to increase it in size tenfold. That's the reality. We're going to take a brief time out here on Masker Radio and be back with more from our guest, Eric Hecker, after this. Back here on Masker Radio, joined today by whistleblower Eric Hecker. Now, Eric, as it pertains to your remote work in Antarctica, what was one of your biggest personal takeaways from that period? I guess my biggest personal takeaway now is it's very unfortunate that the military-industrial community seems to have such a stranglehold on the activity of what is going on on continent down south, unbeknownst to the crews that are seemingly negatively impacted every single year since I was there. I mean, they had to know that once you made these discoveries, you were going to say something. You were going to come forward with this information. Did they just think that people would think you were crazy and dismiss your claims or what? Absolutely. First and foremost, they never had a clue that I would figure this out. I mean, that's the whole point of compartmentalization of information is the presumption that they covered all of their bases and secrecy will be maintained. They had no clue that I was going to show up and figure things out. Uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you about Dr. Stephen Greer and what led you to being part of the legendary Disclosure 2.0 event. How did you come to meet Dr. Stephen Greer? That's a great question. I, I, I believe I met Dr. Stephen Greer through John Warner IV, who was the son of the former Secretary of the Navy, Republican Senator of Virginia, former leader of Operation Deep Freeze, which had a lot to do with what was going on down in Antarctica. So I believe it was John's interest in my testimony because he, through his understanding of what his father was up to and what I was presenting, he was able to observe what was really going on. And he was already friends with Dr. Greer. So I believe it was through the connection with John Warner that I became friends with Dr. Greer and interviewed with him. We shared a lot of information, uh, both you know publicly through the interviewing process, but then we also communicated behind the scenes a fistful of times about you know what what's really going on in the world. That's pretty much what got me over to Washington, DC for his event. And more specifically, and more importantly, was that I did testify in two SCIFs, SCIF, which is Secret Compartmented Information Facilities, for both the Department of Defense in regards to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the new, the ARO program, AARO, which has been tasked with getting all of the UFO and UAP information collected from every other governmental organization to figure out what the heck is going on. So I went down to Washington, D.C. and shared all of my information. And I, quite frankly, I blew their minds. They were very appreciative for me going there to give them the information. They assured me that my information was going into the National Archives and being expedited to Congress because it appears that we have rogue agencies within our government that are operating without congressional oversight which is wholly illegal. So while the, the song and dance and the smokescreen of activities, which supports the bullshit, is the stories like, like Grush and these things that are happening publicly where there are folks pretending 
that we have no idea what's going on with UFOs, that we have no idea how to make a craft go that fast and turn that quickly. Folks, these are the cover stories. The brass tacks reality is that we've been wholly involved in this level of technology, and folks like me are trying to get to the remaining good folks in our government to try to rectify the existence of these rogue activities operating without congressional oversight and not to the benefit of we the people. The whole way that our structure is supposed to work is that we the people send representatives of us, not leaders, representatives to work on our behalf through Congress and to fund programs that maintain oversight. Without that oversight, they are what is called rogue, and they do whatever they want. And what we're finding out is that these rogue factions are up to horrible activities, both on and off this planet. The technology exists. Folks like Ben Rich know it. Folks like Jim Goodall know it. Folks like Joseph Farrell, Walter Bosley. A lot of people have been talking about breakaway civilization type stuff, that there's just there's a, a split in our society, and the vast majority of us are stuck fighting, trying to figure out how to pay our mortgages, while there's another aspect of our society that's literally out in the cosmos, mining asteroids, making trillions of dollars, and involved with intergalactic commerce. It's, it's that far-fetched, but that real as well. Outside of secretive technology within the Raytheon Labs, what was the general consensus about civilians? How do you feel they view us? As product. We're, we're pretty much just product. That's, that's the benefit of us being in the dark, is that it appears that you know we, the people of this planet, are a, a labor force for hire. And for hire is a, a really loose term. It's more like for enslavement. I mean, look at look at how we function on this planet right now, on the planet in this peculiar arrangement that we all live in. Who's free? Who's making decisions every single day about what they want to do? Or are they really just choosing between options that somebody else presented in front of them? I've often said that, you know, in life, there's many times where a fork in the road shows up in your life and you and you look to the left and you look to the right and you go oh look at me i'm a i'm about to exercise my free will and choose which path i take is that is that actually freedom what if you paused for a few minutes and considered who built the road that i'm on that's splitting if somebody manufactured this road and the left side and the right side and i'm just choosing an option that somebody made for me. There's no there's no free will whatsoever, actually, in that when people consider it. Now, this is interesting. On June 18th, Eric, you posted a photo on your Facebook of a green laser from your friends at the USAP. Can you elaborate on the significance of the green laser? Yes, that actually, that blew my mind, actually. That was, um, <laughs> I was very happy to see that. So the event in Washington, D.C. that I went to with Dr. Greer, uh, giving testimony to the organizations that were interested. Part of the information that I shared with them is that there's this extremely powerful green laser at the South Pole Station that I, I witnessed with my own eyes. I did not have a picture of it. There was nothing that I could do <laughs> to prove that statement when I expressed it to everybody in Washington. Lo and behold, six days later on my birthday, the National Science Foundation 
has a website. They can put anything they want on that website. But on that day, my birthday, they put up a picture of the green laser firing out of South Pole Station. And to me, I mean, anybody can argue with me on this one, but they're never going to change my mind. I still have friends in the program, and that was a gift. They were hooking me up. They corroborated my statement within a week on my birthday. What else could a whistleblower in the disclosure community ask for? Okay, but what exactly is the significance of the green laser? What's it even doing? What's its purpose? Do you have any idea? Everything going on is multifaceted. I understand a lot of people get very upset at the things that I put out. Everything that we invest in certainly has a primary purpose that's palatable. You know, the, the primary story, yes, it has something to do with atmospheric conditions and they're measuring stuff for science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing with the ice cube neutrino detector. It has a benign primary purpose for science. But there's also the secondary and the tertiary issues is what I'm trying to bring to the surface. So if anybody wants to study green laser beams, the power supply is required, you know, the duration that it takes. I watched this green laser beam fire many times for a long duration. So this is peculiar activity that supersedes the primary purpose. And I would say that what I was witnessing was, was either A, some sort of weapon system, B, some sort of communications system, and the things that I'm I'm putting together as I decipher my experience and learn more in retrospect about the stuff I was being lied to on the front end is that massive power supplies and peculiar superfluids, which we apparently had in mass at the South Pole Station, can make what they call chemical lasers. So I'm not an expert on this topic yet, but I am deciphering my experience to learn more. And I appreciate that the secondary and tertiary type events that were going on are the actual real reason that the primary pretenses are set up in front of us. You know, we don't have horrible programs all over this planet being presented to the people at face value. They're all operating under some false pretense. They get up to the podium and say, we're investing in this, and this is going to be great for humanity, and so on and so forth. But that's how all of this stuff works, is that, you know, guess what, folks? They lie about stuff to us. I like what you said about deciphering your life, because I wanted to ask you about your website, deciphering.tv. This is something you came up with to share your findings and beliefs with the public. Just talk a little bit about what the people can expect when they check it out. You got it. Um, the whole reason I started the website was, unfortunately, I learned that everybody else should also be paying attention to, is that the freedom of speech is no longer free. I'm not happy about the fact that I now have to spend hundreds of dollars a month to maintain freedom of speech. But that was my whole point was that I could see that, you know, platforms like YouTube, platforms like Facebook, every platform out there has some noose around everybody's neck. And if you don't like if they don't like what you say, they'll just hang you. So I have my own platform so that I can disseminate the information as I feel fit so that I can put up the documentation that I have to prove my statements so that there's this repository that anybody can go to right now. You can go into the archive section on my website at deciphering.tv. If you want to download the documents, you can do that. If you just want to peruse 
you can do that. There's a chat room on the website. If like-minded people want to have a real conversation about what's going on in the world, they can do that there, and I'm not going to stop them. I want people to look at these documents. I want people to get engaged in uncensored, bold truth, because that is something that's not being tolerated anymore. I, I want to start massive arguments in the disclosure community because I see a lot of gatekeepers. I see a lot of activity. What I would just say, the vast majority of content creators out there are lying scumbags that are working for some faction. It just is what it is. I, I made a post one time and I just simply stated that it's a, it's a very common belief nowadays that the mass media is wholly corrupted. It's a unpopular belief to then say the internet is the mass media people get pissed off when you do that people get mad when you say all of the stuff that they're finding on the internet is garbage but i'm very quick to say that on the topic of antarctica because i know because i've been there i've spent more time there than anybody else in this conversation in the disclosure community and i know these other folks are full of crap so i'm here to kick the shins of the bullshit artists. I'm here to throw stones at the podiums where the liars show up, and I don't care anymore. Um, people can say that I'm here to be divisive, but I'm here to say I'm the opposite. The division comes from tolerating the liars in the mix to allow them to muddy the waters. The only thing I'm trying to divide out is the muck from the clarity, which is the point of disclosure, is to get the truth to the people and no longer tolerate the BS from the BS artists. And they're very good at what they do. Eric Hecker has been my guest today, and we'll make sure we follow along on the website, deciphering.tv. Eric, as it pertains to anything we've discussed today, is there anything else you'd like to add before we let you go? Absolutely. Uh, everybody out there needs to get as far away from their technology as often as they can. Get out into the woods and start to wean yourself off of the technological addiction you currently have. It is like that planking challenge they did a few years back. You know, can you plank for 30 seconds? Oh, yeah, now I'm up to a minute. Now I'm up to five minutes. Okay. Do this with your technology. Get away from it for 30 seconds. Get away from it for five minutes. Learn to leave your house without your cell phone. Learn to do it for an hour. Learn to do it for a day. Learn to do it for a week. If what I am saying right now is challenging to you, if you can't do it, if you find it hard, it only proves me correct that you're wholly addicted and they own you. So either do it, do it fast and do it with ease, or I'm right and they got you. Deciphering.tv is the website. Eric Hecker, hey, thanks again for joining us on Masker Radio. Have a nice rest of your day, okay? Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the best of Massacre Radio. Some of your listeners might appreciate this because it's about John Carpenter film. I mean, you know, the kid was just shrieking, which mm -hmm. is a natural thing to yeah. do when somebody's ripping your penis apart. I told her that we were adults and you can't act this way.